Hello, I'm Steve Orahelli. I'm from the, from the University of Cambridge. I'm interested in what makes us fat, and when we get fat, why do we get sick? And today's talk, I'm going to talk about why obesity leads to its adverse health outcomes. Obesity is really the effect, <clears throat> the end effect of an excess of energy intake over energy expenditure. This leads to an expanded mass of triglycerides in our fat cells and our adipocytes, and that's how we define obesity. But really, we're worried about obesity, not because of the cosmetic effect of this, but because of the health effects. And I think it's useful to group those into three. Firstly, there's mechanical and gravitational effects, if you like, the weight influencing the fact that we increase the risk of osteoarthritis of the knees, the increased intra-abdominal pressure leading to reflux esophagitis, the narrowed airway leading to sleep apnea. So there's clearly a direct link there between the expanded mass of, of, of triglyceride in fat cells and the adverse effects. But when it comes to cancers and metabolic diseases, it's not quite so clear why having an expanded mass of triglyceride in fat cells leads to those. In fact, it opens the question of does it? Is, is the obesity just a, a marker? And is it something about the chronic energy intake over energy expenditure that's directly leading to these cancers and metabolic diseases? The way we've tried to address this question over the years is to find one key phenomenon very closely associated with obesity and predisposing to metabolic disease and indeed cancer. And that's the biochemical marker of insulin resistance. Now, as individuals get fatter, they tend to need more insulin to control blood glucose than they did when they were slimmer. So here's a graphical representation of, of that. And you can see that the amount of insulin actually varies enormously uh, across the population. So some people who are obese don't become particularly insulin resistant, but some do become severely insulin resistant and require a lot of insulin to maintain normal, normal blood glucose. Insulin resistance comes with a lot of additional baggage. Jerry Reven in the United States some 20 years ago or more pointed out that individuals who are insulin resistant have high cardiovascular risk. They have abnormal circulating blood lipids. They have abnormal clotting factors. They have fatty liver. They're more prone to a range of disorders, not just simply an increased risk of insulin resistance and type 2 uh, <clears throat> diabetes. So a key question is how do we get from obesity to insulin resistance? Because insulin in the whole body affects predominantly the muscle and the liver. The adipose tissue itself doesn't really concern itself with taking up too much glucose compared to those major uh, glucose-controlling organs, liver and muscle. So how do we get from sustained positive energy balance to insulin resistance in liver and muscle? If you were to ask uh, 100 diabetes researchers these days or 100 practicing diabetologists, they'd probably say, well, we think we know that now. We think it's because the fat cell becomes large, the adipose tissue depot becomes inflamed, and the fat cell produces a range of circulating or paracrine factors which somehow influence insulin and glucose handling in liver and muscle. And there's abundant evidence from mouse experiments that this is true, but the supportive evidence for humans, as I'll come to later, is somewhat less secure. There's another and somewhat older idea about how how we might translate this sustained energy balance into insulin resistance. And that's one where I, I, I sometimes say it's where your fat cell is not your enemy. Your fat cell is your friend. Your fat cell is by far the safest place to keep positive energy, energy balance and keep calories. And it's only when you start 
reaching the limits of safe fat cells, fat storage of triglycerides, and those nutrients start to go to non-professional storage tissues such as liver and muscle, then it's the ectopic lipid and the ectopic nutrients that are really causing the mischief and causing insulin resistance and defective glucose handling in these tissues. <clears throat> One of the reasons we've got to the notion that this is a, an interesting idea is partly the fact that we've been studying patients with severe insulin resistance for over 25 years. And over those years, we have found, we've looked for people who have extremely high levels of circulating insulin, and we've looked <clears throat> genetically to find signaling defects, defects in the, how insulin works in the cell <clears throat> uh, to control blood glucose. And we found a number of individuals, a number of, of, of genetic defects as, as sort of illustrated in, in this slide here. But I think one of the most important things we've learned is from taking those individuals and then measuring the variety of uh, physiological variables that we find in those people with defective insulin signaling and then compare them to people with the typical metabolic syndrome. So in the top two rows you see that in both our individuals with signaling defects and typical metabolic syndrome insulin levels are high, diabetes risk is increased. But below that we start seeing really quite marked divergences. When you have a defect in insulin signaling you actually have no abnormalities often in triglycerides or HDL. You very often have no abnormalities in liver fat, and you often indeed have an increased serum adiponectin. These all diverge markedly from individuals with, if you like, common or garden metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance. But there was one set of <clears throat> conditions we've studied over the last uh, a couple of decades where we really do see a complete metabolic phenocopy and that's individuals with lipodystrophy. These are individuals who are insulin resistant to because they either cannot make fat cells or they cannot uh, 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 keep triglycerides within fat cells. And they develop, as, as pictured here, an absence of body fat, fats elsewhere in the, in, in, in the body as shown in the, under the skin of the feet or in the, in, the, in the eye circulation. And with my wonderful colleague David Savage, uh, and others over the last few years, we've discovered many of the uh, uh, genes in, in, in collaboration with others, and indeed uh, other groups around the world have discovered other genes, and so we now understand a lot more about the genetic architecture of lipodystrophy. Here's one example, I think, which is particularly illustrative. It's human perilipin-1 uh, deficiency, a specific subtypes of mutations within this adipocyte uh, triglyceride coat protein. All the members of this family who only carry one mutation in, 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 in perilipin-1 all develop partial lipodystrophy, insulin resistance, and the full range of uh, downstream abnormalities, fatty liver disease, cardiovascular disease, etc. The, the individuals carry, uh, carry heterozygous mutations uh, which cause one copy of perilipin to be made normally and then another mutant copy uh, with an aberrant C-terminal tail. So what's happening in these individuals? The important fact is that perilipin-1 is only expressed in white adipocytes. So here we have a disorder where you simply have one copy of one gene made only in one tissue, the white adipocyte, and yet every feature of the metabolic syndrome is present in these severely affected individuals. What's happening? Well, what's happening is as follows. Here's where perilipin-1 is. It sits on the surface of the lipid droplet in the white cell with its partner molecule, CGI58. And when you're making fat, when you've eaten, your lipid droplet is concerned with making fat, and the breakdown enzymes, ATGL and HSL, are kept away from the, the lipid droplet. Then, when you fast overnight, 
the hormonal milieu of fasting <coughs> and, and indeed sleeping induces hormonal changes in the body which induce phosphorylation changes within uh, the adipocyte. The C-terminal phosphorylation <coughs> site in perilipin uh, 1 <coughs> knocks off the binding site for CGI58 which then goes zipping around the uh, surface of the, of, of the white fat, fat droplet and grabs ATGL, the initiating uh, 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 lipase, and that starts to break down the triglyceride droplet. Then at the same time, the second phosphorylation site near the end terminus of, uh, uh, of perilipin uh, binds hormone-sensitive lipase, the second, initiate, the second uh, uh, lipase, and then the beautiful cascade of lipolysis starts to break down triglyceride down to, the, to three uh, uh, individual fa fatty acids. So that's happening in all of you, in everybody listening to this talk, in between their fed and their fasted state. And that is natural metabolic health. The unfortunate people who have this C-terminal perilipin-1 mutant have, as you see in the bottom here with the green box, they've lost that phosphorylation site at the C-terminal end of perilipin-1. And throughout the day, irrespective of whether they've been fed or fasted, CGI-58 is free to roam and, 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 and binds promiscuously to HEGL. And therefore, throughout the day, whether you're fed or not, your fat cell is breaking down triglycerides and releasing molecules of, of fatty acid. Now, remarkably, this in itself is enough to cause every single feature of the metabolic, <coughs> the metabolic syndrome. Insulin resistance, fatty liver, atherosclerosis. This is a rare condition, but I think one which is really illustrative of the very important point that the health of your white fat cell, and indeed the health the healthy dynamic of your white cell fat droplet is really crucial to your overall organismal metabolic health. Is this again more relevant outside the, these rarities? And is, it, is this sort of process relevant to the wider uh, uh, population of people with the metabolic syndrome? Well, to address this, we <coughs> collaborated with our colleagues in the MRC Epidemiology Unit, <coughs> whose names are listed uh, here, led by Nick Wareham, and we asked about genetic variation influencing lipodystrophy-like metabolic phenotypes in the general population. So we looked at people who had high insulin, low HDL cholesterol, and high triglycerides as a composite index. And in <clears throat> nearly 200,000 people, we found 53 genetic variations in the genome that influenced those traits in the general population. And these are shown in the next slide. Now, on the far left of the slide, in red and blue and red, there are the 53 genetic loci that we found to associate, either red being positive and blue being negative. And, of course, that's how we defined uh, our, our phenotypes. So, the, of course, you see the consistent red, blue, and red. Now, if you go to the further end of the slide, you should be able to see independent populations where those SNPs are looked at against type 2 diabetes and coronary artery disease. And, of course, it's reassuring scientifically to find that those genes are associated in totally ind independent populations with these adverse outcomes, these coronary artery disease and type 2 diabetes. What we found puzzling and exciting is when we looked in the middle of the slide. There we took independent populations and said, are these variants, these SNPs, associated with more body fat or less body fat? And rather remarkably, you see a lot of blue. And that lot of blue actually tells you that these individuals, SNPs, and these, indivi these genes when put, when put together actually are associated with lower amounts of body fat, not higher amounts of body fat. And this is <clears throat> taken further into an independent analysis in people who have had compartmental measurements of their body fat using DEXA scanning. So we can actually measure the fat in the arms, trunk, etc. 
And again, looking at the genetic factors that put you at risk of developing these metabolic syndrome phenotypes. What we found quite remarkable was down at the bottom of the slide here, we see that individuals carrying more of these risk alleles actually have less fat, less fat in the gynoid distribution, i.e. buttocks and thighs, less fat in the legs. And really not very much difference in the places we thought would be really important, the visceral fat, only a little bit of an increase in the, in, in, in the visceral fat. This is the, the, the changes in body fat are driven much more by lower body fat in the legs and, and thighs. And indeed, when you take these SNPs and using bioinformatic tools, ask where these variants are expressing uh, uh, their, their uh, actions most, you see quite remarkably that they do so in adipocytes and adipose tissue. In other words, we chose these variants uh, in a completely hypothesis-free way. We didn't ask the adipose tissue, was it abnormal? The adipose tissue spoke to us <clears throat> spontaneously. And then when we take some of those variants and manipulate them, we can show that manipulating these genes influences adipose tissue uh, fat uh, uh, accumulation. So in a further body of work led by Luca Lotta and Nick Wareham, they asked, I think, what is a very interesting and rather uh, piquant question. And the question really is, is it worse to have a, a small bottom or a big belly? And they separated out those variants. In, <clears throat> in red uh, are, are the variants that... That, uh, uh, that, cause, uh, that are selectively associated with uh, uh, a waste ratio, and, and in, in, in blue are the variants uh, associated with uh, only hip, hip ratios. You can see in the bottom there that fasting insulin, measure for insulin resistance, is much more strongly associated <coughs> with the hip SNPs rather than the waist SNPs. And then when it comes to the bottom line data, type 2 diabetes risk greatly influenced by hip much more than waist circumference. So what's actually determining these risks of diabetes is not the big belly, it's the absence of fat on the buttocks and, <coughs> and legs, much more so than the larger belly. They're much more equal when it comes to coronary artery disease, but for diabetes, it's the absence of fat in, in buttocks and thighs that's much bigger, having a much bigger influence than the positive presence of fat in the visceral <coughs> deposits. So <coughs> it really led me to develop a a kind of useful model, explanatory model, or at least an illustrative model for, for what's going on. So, so you can think of this as a, as, a, as a bathroom in a hotel you happen to go into that somebody's left a plug out and somebody's left a, left a, left a, left a tap on. But that's fine because the bathroom is, you know, it's an old B&B, &B, it's got a carpet, and, uh, and the carpet's perfectly healthy because the flow is fine, you've re reached a steady state, and you've got a, a perfectly healthy and non-soggy carpet. But we often think of metabolic disease as being due to too much energy in, i.e. pouring too much in, on the, or a decreased energy out, to restraining how, how much we, 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 we let out. And of course, then you overfill your bath and you get a terrible, messy uh, 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 situation. And that's kind of how we tend to think about metabolic disease. I think what our data, both in lipodystrophy, now in, and all, now in the common forms of insulin resistance is showing that... that Really, we haven't paid enough attention to the size of the bath. In other words, as well as how much energy we take in or how much energy we expend, we differ between us in our abilities to safely expand our adipose depots so that some individuals become severely insulin-resistant and diabetic at rather low levels of energy imbalance, whereas others <clears throat> are capable of tolerating a large amount of obesity without developing uh, any metabolic uh, complications. So... 
here's one example of what one might be able to do in individuals who've got a small size bath. We look after in, in our clinic patients with severe insulin resistance and lipodystrophy. Here's an example of one such patient and a DEXA scan. This person has very low fat in their, in their legs and limbs compared to their central uh, uh, depots. They have severe uh, uh, uncontrolled diabetes on hundreds of units of insulin a day. And what we've done in this individual is undertake bariatric surgery. Now, this individual is only very modestly obese, wouldn't be really defined as severely obese, but has got a really poor ability to handle any excess calories. Now, what bariatric surgery does is it chronically suppresses food intake, largely through suppressing appetite and changing the signaling to the brain. And just within a few months, here's April, just a few months after the surgery in December, that individual has lost a large amount of their central body weight. But effectively, what they've done is turn the tap off on their small bath. And rapidly, they have, their diabetes has gone away. They've, effectively, they're off. They were on hundreds of units of insulin. They're now on no units of insulin. So individuals with this very limited capacity to store adipose tissue safely are particularly be, have, have great benefit from bariatric surgery even indeed more so than individuals with severe obesity. And now this has been uh, spun out in, in, in a much broader uh, uh, clinical studies to see how, how, how widely applicable this is in, in partial lipodystrophy. <clears throat> We're now moving in our next scientific phase away from, if you like, vague hand-waving about these sorts of genes that influence adipose mass, trying to drill down and find precise molecular regulators of fat cells particularly so that if we can identify those, then perhaps they might be therapeutically manipulable. We might be able to use them as therapeutic targets to increase our safe fat cell storage. This is just an overview slide showing that in using UK Biobank, uh, we can find rare non-synonymous variants that are strongly associated with waist-hip uh, ratio. Because Biobank is now so large and the sequencing and SNP data is so extensive, we can really start drilling down into individual <coughs> uh, genes. Here, for example, are some variants in the serine kinase ALK7 encoded by the gene ACVR1C. The two on the right are actually missense variants. They're truly uh, uh, genes that influence, uh, that genes that, uh, variants that cause changes in the amino acid uh, sequence in, 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 the, in, in the genes. And looking at the two of them here, uh, N150H is probably a bit less interesting because it's not so conserved across species. But I195T is highly conserved across many, many species. And if you look at what I95T does, it has a profound structural impact on the putative functions of, uh, of ALK7. It influences the, the, uh, the so-called GS domain here in green and really would prevent it flipping away when the ligand binds to this uh, receptor and prevent the access of the next uh, uh, downstream signaling molecules, the SMAD, prevent access to the, to the catalytic loop. So when uh, uh, we went ahead and, and reconstituted this mutant, a very talented postdoc in the lab, Nuno Rocha, uh, uh, did this and, and really <clears throat> wanted to see whether uh, uh, this variant truly does influence uh, signaling. And what Nuno showed in, in, in red here is that this uh, uh, variant, which is associated, as I mentioned, from protection from uh, 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 protective phenotypes, a, a low waist-hip ratio, and protection from type 2 diabetes, actually is a loss-of-function allele compared to a, a constitutively active in, in gray. Uh, uh, one of the other variants in yellow, which doesn't seem to have any effect, but the red is our uh, 195T variant, which is markedly impaired in signaling compared to our uh, uh, wild type. So this is surprising, 
because in mice, at least, inactivation of ALK7 has been reported to enhance lipolysis. So we're further working now in human adipocytes to, to see if this finding is different in humans. But I think this data provides evidence that large-scale human sequencing efforts are now empowering the study of human coding variation and their links to phenotype. And these rare missense and nonsense variants can now be pretty unequivocally associated with human phenotype. And these will provide an and play an increasingly important role in drug target uh, validation. So does insulin resistance always affect all insulin tissues uh, equally? And the answer to that is no. Because glucose is handled in different ways in different tissues. There are, for example, uh, <coughs> uh, tissues where, where um, uh, insulin is not required particularly to, to uh, 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 um, uh, get rid of, of glucose. The brain, the kidney, hemo hemopoietic uh, 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 tissues. But two of the key target tissues I mentioned to you before are liver and skeletal muscle. Actually, insulin works in different ways in these two tissues. In <coughs> liver, insulin reduces hepatic glucose output, reduces glycogenolysis and gluconeogenesis, but it does so through post-translational modification by inducing transcriptional events uh, and indirectly through substrate delivery from fat and muscle. Insulin action in skeletal muscle happens in a very different way. There, you get very rapid stimulation of glucose uptake. And here, preformed GLUT4 containing vesicles sitting underneath the plasma membrane rapidly flip to the surface, plasma membrane surface in response to insulin. And so, the, there are some key differences in how insulin works in, in, in these two tissues. And this is illustrated by a rare family that we discovered a few years ago in which, in, in comparison to most people with insulin resistance reflected in the blue line above, who have high fasting insulin and high insulin after a meal, these two siblings had extraordinarily high insulin postprandially, but normal fasting insulin. So how could that be? Well, that was because they had a process and a mutation affecting a process that only occurs in skeletal muscle and, and in part in fat. And that is the translocation of GLUT4. And there's a key molecule, so-called RAB-GAP, TBC1D4, otherwise known as AS160, which is a key regulatory step in regulating how insulin translocates GLUT4 to the plasma membrane. And individuals who are heterozygous loss of function for this mutation have a continuous leak of GLUT4 to the cell surface so that actually when insulin comes to act, there's inadequate intracellular GLUT4 uh, vesicles and you get a severely impaired uh, postprandial response. Again, we looked for many years and could never find a second family, so this is an exceptionally rare, albeit very interesting, uh, rarity. But in <clears throat> the last couple of years, it's become fascinating that if you look elsewhere, for example, in the Greenland Inuit, <clears throat> the allelic frequency of a very similar mutation is 17%. A very large number of Greenland Inuits carry a very similar mutation. And indeed, in those, you can see that the, those that carry two uh, copies of that have a much higher two-hour glucose than individuals who carry uh, uh, one or no copies of that. Of that. So uh, a rarity in the UK has become a phenomenon of epidemiological proportions in another population. And that's another lesson I think we're learning in this field, the importance of studying rare population isolates and how illuminating they can be and how different from each other the architecture of, of, of genetic variation causing disease can be between these populations. So the carriers here, interestingly, also have marked postprandial hyperinsulinemia. And many people have thought that if you had, 
for example, impaired insulin signaling and skeletal muscle had very high insulin, that might put your weight up. These individuals have no difference in body weight and indeed no differences in circulating lipids, making us think again about what hyperinsulinemia might actually be doing to things like body weight and lipids. So I'm going to end with a, an overview, uh, really, of how organs work together. The wonderful thing about endocrinology and metabolism is they're really not conditions of cells. They're conditions of systems. And you have to understand how the system works to really uh, get a true understanding and true, true knowledge of, of, of disease pathophysiology. So if you were going to avoid getting type 2 diabetes, how, how much you go about it? Well, first of all, you'd maintain energy balance. You wouldn't let your energy in get more than your energy out. And that, as we've discovered from our genetic studies, it, <clears throat> not discussed with you today, but it, in other contexts, uh, is really a job of the brain and the, and the gut-brain uh, uh, interface. So the brain is really the most important organ determining who is perpetually hungry, who is easily satiated, the variation between individuals in energy balance. The next step <clears throat> is that of the to store, if, if, you, if you can't manage to stay in energy balance and you do accumulate an energy imbalance, then you're fine so long as you can safely store that in fat. So adipose tissue has really turned out to be a very important and not just a passive store of lipid, but a very important determinant of how, we, how our metabolic balance or imbalance can be, men, can be maintained. If we can't store lipids safely in our adipose tissue and it goes to liver and muscle, then a key factor there is whether that lipid produces insulin insensitivity of glucose metabolism. There we find at the moment fewer genetic variants that determine that factor. That may be a methodological uh, issue. I'm sure these processes are, are, are key. But some individuals become insulin resistant, some become severely insulin resistant. And yet some severely insulin-resistant individuals don't get type 2 diabetes. And in work, again, I haven't discussed today, the key transition point between those individuals who are insulin-resistant and those who then decompensate to diabetes is the genetic architecture of your pancreatic beta cells. Work from colleagues in Oxford, Exeter, and elsewhere around the world have really done beautiful uh, uh, science showing how important the genetic health of your pancreatic beta cells are to determine whether you transition to type 2 diabetes or not. I return to the immune system and the host defense. Much work in mice has really illustrated a, a, a critical role uh, and suggested a critical role for the immune system in maintaining uh, metabolic health. And yet many of our genetic uh, uh, work and indeed very uh, much pharmacology really hasn't come up with that much human evidence that this is terribly uh, important. I mean, for example, if you look uh, uh, as Bernstein's lab did a few years ago, at the, at the genetic SNPs, at, at, at single nucleotide polymorphisms associated with a variety of inflammatory and a variety of metabolic uh, phenotypes, there's really very little overlap. There's almost a complete separation between the inflammatory diseases and the metabolic diseases. And in the same uh, paper, looking in a different way at which tissues might be implicated through, uh, through genomics and transcriptomics, uh, you can find, for example, in the top Left-hand corner uh, here, uh, uh, Bernstein's lab is looking at neurological conditions and, and showing that they cluster around brain tissue, not surprisingly. And then a whole range of immune conditions, very, very wi widespread immune conditions. And of course, again, unsurprisingly, the genetic variation influencing them is having its major effect on immune cells, on lymphocytes and macrophages. Again, 
like with the SNPs and the disease associations, me <clears throat> metabolic disorders such as high triglycerides, low HDL, fasting glucose, etc., tend to cluster away from the immune <coughs> phenotypes. So I would say that it's still a, a, an interesting hypothesis that the, our, our host defense and immune system is critically important for metabolic health. But we still need <clears throat> more and more detailed genetic investigation and more pharmacological proof before those undoubtedly beautiful murine experiments uh, are, are, are seen as, as deeply relevant to human uh, disease. So finally, how can we use this information to prevent insulin resistance? We are, at the moment, we know that we need to reduce calories in. <clears throat> That's easy to say. We can tell people to lose weight <clears throat> and, and reduce food. But sometimes now we get to a stage where drugs will help. And there, is an, uh, there are exciting developments in anorectic drug uh, developments. And I think this is likely to get more effective. We can tell people to exercise uh, more, increase their expended calories. There's much work going on in trying to develop drugs to increase brown adipose tissue thermogenesis, for example, or act as exercise mimetics. But they're some way behind the development of drugs uh, for, for suppressing food intake. What about making our bath bigger? Uh, can we increase safe storage of calories in adipose tissue? Well, actually, one class of drugs, one of which is still available, has proved the concept. Thiazolidinedione drugs do indeed improve insulin sensitivity, while at the same time increasing your fat mass. Sadly, with some of the drugs, there are other uh, safety issues. But I think we have got proof that if we can cleverly target adipose tissue to make it a safer store for our fat, that is a, another route towards uh, uh, rendering individuals metabolically healthier. So I'd like to finish by thanking my colleagues and collaborators, our referring physicians, our funders, but particularly our patients, participants, and families, without whom we would not have had a research program. Thank you.